Welcome to Non-Obvious with Professor Hugh Hansen. I'm Paul Michel, today's guest, and happy to be here. All right, all right. Uh, okay, uh, Paul, we, uh, you notice I'm a first name person. Uh, uh, so I'm just gonna call you Paul. You can call sure. me Sir Hugh or <laughs> Professor Hugh, but Hugh is good for me. Uh, uh, all right, everybody, uh, this is um, the beginning of podcast, and I feel tremendously honored, actually, to have Paul as our guest. I mean, he is an amazing person, and uh, just at, it's at the very top of our profession on, on many levels. So welcome, Paul. Uh, my only requirement is asking you not to screw it up, okay? Okay. Uh, uh, and, uh, okay, where were you born? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And is that where you grew up? In the suburbs nearby. And how was that? It was a, a Norman Rockwell life, ideal, idyllic life. That's great. Uh, and where did you go to school at first? I went to the local public schools in Radnor Township, Pennsylvania, Radnor High School, and from there to Williams College, and directly from Williams College to the University of Virginia Law School, where I finished in 1966 and launched out onto the world. I like that, launched out onto the world. Um, uh, and how did you like uh, your elementary school? It, it was excellent. It had a very progressive teachers, but they also were strict about learning fundamentals, you know, reading, writing, reckoning. Uh, so it was a nice combination, a nice mix. I had excellent teachers uh, from kindergarten through senior high school in that public school system in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I was lucky to, uh, uh, to have the same. Uh, and I just hope the kids today are getting uh, the same type of education. Uh, um, what did your parents do? My father was uh, vice president of a casualty insurance company in Philadelphia. Uh, and my mother, who was actually the brains of the family, uh, was a part-time author and news local newspaper columnist and sort of an activist in the community, chairing the public library board in Radnor Township. Wow. Uh, it's fantastic. Both of them. Wow. Well, what did your father do to become the whatever the... He uh, came out of Williams College in 1932. Uh, of course high depression at that point. Uh, he was able to get a job uh, with this Philadelphia-based insurance company, uh, partly through his father, who had been in the insurance brokerage business and association with a law firm based in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, and my older brother also became an insurance person, the third generation in a row. So I had to do something different. So I became a lawyer. You know, it's interesting. When I think of my parents and your parents, they had the depression, then they had Nazi Germany start a war, 
Uh, and when I was growing up, it was like no after effect on that. They were just regular people. They they just lived through this and went and moved on. It's quite remarkable. Uh, I agree. And I think that it endowed them with certain character traits that uh, succeeding generations would do well to imitate because they were very focused on the welfare of other people, of the community, uh, of the country, and way less focused than some today seem to be on me, 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 what I want, uh, and things like that, shallow, uh, egotistical focus. They were very focused on doing good in the world if they could. Okay. Uh, so are you you single or married? Uh, I'm married. I'm actually married for the third time. Uh, but what's the cliche? The third time is the charm. Happily married for almost 20 years now to my wife, whose name is Brooke. And she's a uh, international political economist trained at the University of Chicago. Uh, and right now she's doing research on women founders of the country, including Martha Washington. And she'll probably write a biography of Martha Washington when her research is concluded. Oh, what happens? Uh, wow. Uh, I'm not married. I was, uh, I thought I was going to get married until my future wife thought better of it uh, and decided that I'm not going to get married. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, what extracurricular activities did you do in uh, high school? I was very active in musical uh, endeavors, uh, playing in the high school concert and marching band, the uh, jazz what band. In, what instrument did you play? Percussion instruments of all sorts. Ooh, wow. And I also sang in a, a chorus uh, at the school. Uh, and I played sports, mostly football, badly. Uh, so I was a sort of, you know, what second was your string, position? Uh, end. Well, okay, that's a, that's the safest. That's a good position to be on, yeah, and an important position to be on. Well, it was uh, it was a good position for somebody who was skinny but kind of fast and shifty. So it was better than the alternatives, which required more brawn and more violence. It's interesting. My parents, I wanted to play football, refused to let me play football because of the danger, uh, and. Uh, so you made it through without any serious injuries or whatever? Uh, I did. I was very lucky. Um, uh, I did uh, get my nose broken in eighth grade in a football game, colliding with an opposing player, uh, and actually suffered three subsequent nose breaks, but uh, not in uh, football. Uh, so, yeah, that was the extent of my oh, uh, injury. Suffered three subsequent what? Nose breaks, three times broken nose. But not connected with football. The first one was, the others were not. So are you basically a bully beating everyone up and then they punch you on the nose or what? what what's going on here? All different things. Uh, one was inflicted by my older brother who was pretending to be a boxer and uh, feigning hitting me, but he actually did hit me and broke my nose. <laughs> Uh, and then two other uh, breaks occurred 
at the at the hands of the same guy who was a fellow lifeguard at a nearby swimming hole. Um, we were throwing a ball back and forth, uh, and um, it bounced off my hands as I tried to catch it and uh, jammed into my glasses. And that was one break. And actually, the last break. Um, so actually, it's four. I misspoke. Four in all. The final one was I collided with the same guy who threw the ball at a party, both coming through doorways, moving fast in opposite directions. And the top of his forehead caught me right in the bridge of the nose. So that was break number four. Otherwise, I've been essentially uninjured my whole life. And you're no longer near this guy? Or are you safe or what? What's going on? Uh... He became a famous nephrologist. It was on the cover of Time magazine as a pioneering research doctor who discovered that more often than salt causing high blood pressure, it was caused in huge portion of people by inadequate calcium. Uh, mm. Anyway, he, he became quite a, a famous doctor. I, I was never on the cover of Time magazine. Well, you still can be you know, <laughs> with, all, with all you're doing. Um, all right. How about college? Any extracurricular in college? Uh, I was a swimmer the first year in college and uh, active again in musical things, played in several jazz bands and a local uh, symphony orchestra. Uh, and that was, of course, a continuation of high school pursuits and and was uh, lots of fun. And in fact, I, I, I really got a lot out of it because these bands played uh, on student ships going back and forth between uh, New York and Amsterdam. Uh, and uh, also uh, during spring break at hotels in Bermuda. So I got uh, free vacations and a lot of uh, fun uh, playing uh, on these uh, trips. Well, you know, it's interesting how our life has similar things. I was in the uh, marching band is what we called it in uh, junior high school and uh, got out of it because it was interfering with my dating, actually. Uh, <laughs> A good uh, reason. Um, okay. Um, what, what was your major in college? Political science. And I really chose that very distinctly with the thought of going immediately to law school as I did. And in fact, I was quite focused on becoming a lawyer starting in about the fourth or fifth grade based on reading a biography of Thomas Jefferson. I became kind of intrigued by the idea that law could be uh, something where you could serve everybody, the, the public, the people, not only an individual client, as Jefferson did in much of, of his uh, career. And in fact, at some point, about the same age, I think uh, I got the idea that if I ever had a chance, I might like to become a judge. And I think that came uh, particularly from comments from a grandmother who was always uh, noting that I like to talk and argue uh, and that I seem to be interested in how rules should be applied in specific uh, instances. So she said, someday that boy's going to be a lawyer, maybe a judge. So the seed got planted. Wow. Yeah, I should say so. Um, all right. Um, how was the uh, UVA? Um, well, I went directly to UVA Law School, which was a very good experience, just as college had been. I had excellent professors. Uh, I spent too much time playing touch football and uh, having a fun in various forms. 
so the first uh, two years, my grades were pretty mediocre. The final year, I got very good grades because I actually worked very hard. Yeah, very impressive. So let me tell you one other thing about my experience at law school. The first two years, I had all courses by resident tenured faculty, and they were very good. And I learned a lot. If I'd been more diligent, of course, I could have learned even more. But the final year, with one exception, all of my teachers in the final year were practitioners, mostly taught on weekends, coming down from Washington or New York in most cases. Uh, so I got a good sense of uh, law in the real world, not just in the law school classroom from those uh, adjunct faculty. That was a very enriching experience. And I hope uh, people still uh, have that uh, opportunity. Yeah, well, one of the things about this podcast is, uh, you know, students and young people are going to be hopefully listening to it as well as general public and lawyers and everything else. Uh, and so any any advice you can give them is good. And so you had an interesting also career where you did a number of different things. Uh, so you... Why don't you tell a little bit about when you got out into the real world and what you did? Well, when I was finishing law school, I was very intent on trying to go to Washington and work at the U.S. Senate uh, as a staffer. And I was particularly focused on Robert and Edward Kennedy, who were then both in the Senate. Uh, and I had some interviews, uh, but I got advice from one of or two of my adjunct teachers in the final year of law school that before I went into the political or policy part of law, I ought to learn basic lawyer skills. And they knew I was somewhat interested in litigation. So they said to me, go and learn to be a trial lawyer first, and then you can move on to these other kinds of law and be better prepared. Well, uh, I think that's, is that, do you think that's good advice? I think it's excellent advice. So I went to work as a young criminal prosecutor in Philadelphia in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office right out of law school. Uh, I uh, stayed for a total of seven years. Uh, every step of the way was extremely beneficial and educational. I got to argue uh, in trial courts, uh, in both Pennsylvania appellate courts many, many times, and even in federal court, both uh, district court in Philadelphia and the Third Circuit. So I got a very rich exposure to courts uh, and a lot of chance to write, which was uh, another great feature of my seven years as a prosecutor in Philadelphia. And I worked closely with uh, the then district attorney, uh, later Senator Arlen Specter, And that was an education in and of itself because he was enormously bright and extremely hardworking, very interested in everything touched by law. And just being around him, you, you, you learned a lot. He was tough to work for because he was very demanding, more so on himself even than anybody else. But it was a uh, really wonderful. So uh, when I went to Washington, finally, after seven years with Spectre in Philadelphia, I went there to work on the Watergate investigations. I had sort of developed a specialty of uh, investigating high-level uh, officials accused of corruption in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. So I was sort of a natural to uh, be hired by Leon Jaworski, who was then the special prosecutor. 
Sorry about the phone. So uh, uh, I did go to Washington as I had originally planned, but seven years after uh, I graduated. Uh, and uh, I uh, was very lucky because the job with the special Woody prosecutor's office, very interesting. Uh, in June of 1975, after running an investigation into a slush fund maintained for President Nixon by his banker, personal friend, Charles Rebozo, known as Bibi Rebozo, and also uh, maintained separately by his secretary, Rosemary Woods, um, that investigation uh, didn't yield indictments for reasons that are complicated to explain, but there was a lot of money provided in valises full of $100 bills, you know, 100,000 at a per valise deposited with those two presidential associates. So that investigation was very interesting to direct through a grand jury. Uh, and at the end or near the end of it, I got to uh, question uh, former pre then former President Nixon in front of the Watergate grand jury out at the so-called Western White House in San Clemente, California. And of course, that was a pretty memorable, interesting experience as well. I should say so. It's interesting, again, how our lives are similar. Not, uh, I was in a, a, a USA in the Southern District of New York, um, which was a great experience. And uh, the other thing I just want to tell the young people, you can get a good experience by clerking with a judge, especially a district court judge. It has less prestige than clerking for a court of appeals judge or a Supreme Court judge. But you learn more uh, by just looking how that world is and what judges do and how they feel and everything else. So it's something to keep in mind. I, I totally agree. And I think even cl clerking in a state court as well as a federal court is a very beneficial. I totally agree with you that trial courts even better than the so-called higher courts. It's almost an inversion of what we think of as the normal period. We'd, we would say the Supreme Court's the most beneficial, they're the most prestigious, and the circuit court's in the middle and the trial court's at the bottom. I actually think it's the other way around, that the trial courts are much more uh, useful as a training ground to learn uh, to be a good lawyer and a good litigator. Uh, and the other two levels are increasingly less practical and, and less interesting. It was once suggested by a columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch that because trial courts have such broader powers and uh, and are the, the, the cutting edge of the law, they should actually be paid more than the higher court judges instead of less as actually eventuated. And I agree with that too. I was gonna start giving my stuff, but this is your thing. Right? And uh, that's why we're paying you. It's, it's your show. Um, all right, so how did you, you already said this, how did you meet our inspector? You just went up to him and said, hi, I want to work with you or what? Uh, he was a law school classmate of one of my adjunct professors. Uh, and that uh, professor uh, um, suggested not only that I uh, go uh, to a prosecutor's office to learn to try cases, but that I do it in Philadelphia. Because at that point, at age 35, Arlen Specter had just been elected as a reform uh, DA in a city that had a lot of corruption and crime problems of 
of all sorts. So I thought, well, that's the perfect place to go because Spectre made it clear even before he took office that he was going to hire only on merit and not on political patronage or anything like that. And he did so. Um, so I thought it would be a good opportunity, a well-run office that would be aggressive, but also very ethical, which turned out to be exactly the case. So it was a kind of a dream job. Uh, where you were an assistant U.S. attorney, of course, is the cream of the crop of all prosecutors' offices, federal and state. But I had a very good experience uh, for seven years in the Philadelphia DA's office uh, because uh, Spectre ran it on such a professional, high-minded uh, fashion and we did all kinds of things we had consumer fraud cases we had pollution cases under common nuisance doctrine going uh, we, we uh, uh, did a lot of public nuisance uh, work like closing down problem bars that were uh, uh, fountains of crime uh, and of course all the normal street crime and a great deal of uh, corruption fighting uh, in government. Uh, and I gravitated over the seven years more and more toward that uh, latter uh, area as a kind of a specialty. In the last two years in the DA's office, I ran a special investigating grand jury focused on very high level corruption in the city council and also the state house. Um, and among some contractors in Philadelphia that had a perfectly awful pay for play kind of public contract uh, regime. Uh, so that is what, you know, led me to uh, Watergate. Uh, and then uh, after a year and a half, uh, when the Watergate investigations finished up, uh, I went to work for the Senate Intelligence Committee, later informally known as the Church Committee after its chair, Frank Church, uh, that was investigating uh, abuses of civil rights of Americans by our uh, foreign intelligence spy agencies like NSA, CIA, and others. So that was, again, investigation of high-level misdeeds uh, of one kind or another, similar to Watergate. Very, very interesting. And then that kind of naturally led to uh, going to the Justice Department, which decided to uh, launch a new uh, section to focus on uh, corruption cases but they didn't want to call it the official corruption section. So they called it the public integrity section. So I helped to organize that as its deputy, the number two prosecutor in that office. And then soon after I got there, uh, some information came to light that suggested in quite specific terms that a large number of US congressmen had been paid illegally in cash by agents or employees of the government of the Republic of Korea, what we call South Korea. So then I had another sort of Watergate-like experience for uh, three years running a huge investigation uh, into those allegations. And it was interesting because although some congressmen uh, quit under pressure uh, and others were indicted, uh, Several went to jail, uh, uh, a couple died while they were uh, awaiting final prosecution. But the vast majority of the people on written lists as having taken stated amounts of cash actually hadn't. And it turned out that the agents were sort of cheating their spy masters by pocketing some of the cash 
for themselves and and using the the remainder to actually uh, pay a certain congressmen. So that was a very, very uh, interesting experience. And then that kind of naturally uh, evolved uh, into working uh, with the head of the criminal division who was closely supervising this investigation because of course uh, it involved uh, uh, about a hundred congressmen whose names were on these lists, a big chunk of the Congress. Um, uh, so I got to know him very well. Ben Civiletti uh, was his name. And he later became the deputy attorney general and asked me to come with him and be on his staff as one of his lieutenants. Uh, so I decided to do that. That was in 1978. And I did that for about three years. And that was a very interesting experience because that was all about supervising the FBI, the prison system, the marshal service, uh, and other law enforcement uh, elements of the U.S. Department of Justice. So that was sort of a management policy oversight kind of job, totally different than the investigative work I had done before, but very, very interesting in its own right. And when Civiletti became the attorney general from the deputy attorney general spot, he was replaced by a terrific district judge from uh, the Northern District of California named Charles Renfrew, it was a super brain and a terrific guy. Uh, so I worked for Civil Lady for two years and Renfrew for the final year. Meanwhile, uh, Specter, this is now 1980, uh, was asked to run for a Senate spot uh, in Pennsylvania, U.S. Senator position, and got elected. Uh, so in the fall of 80, after election, but before he was uh, sworn in, he asked me to rejoin him on his staff. And I was very reluctant to do it because I had a fancy title and a fancy office and lots of interesting challenges as a so-called associate deputy U.S. attorney general. So I didn't want to do it. But Specter is enormously persistent as well as persuasive. So in the fourth conversation, I relented and I told him, OK, you gave me such a great start as a young lawyer. I owe it to you to come and I'll come and help organize your office and I'll stay for six or seven months. So I ended up staying for seven years. So seven years together in Philadelphia, seven more years in Washington. And coincidentally, uh, in between the hiatus was also seven years. So I had a very great experience with Spectre again. He took me with him everywhere, including on foreign trips and meetings with presidents and high officials and other senators. So I was a sort of a, had a bird's eye view of all sorts of fascinating things going on in the 80s in the U.S. Senate. And then in uh, 87, uh, he and the, with the support of other senators, both R's and D's, uh, the Reagan administration decided to nominate me for a judgeship uh, on the federal circuit, uh, which then occurred, and I uh, was sworn in in March of 88. Uh, all right, so of all these activities, which are fascinating, is it, and I'm doing this because, you know, people listening to this, it's rare to get those experiences that you did uh, don't expect if you do this, you're going to have all these wonderful experiences or you you made it happen. And how did you make it happen? Well, uh, you're certainly correct that luck uh, of timing has a lot to do with it and certain uh, help from people like the adjunct professor who 
suggested I go interview with Spectre, which I did. Uh, and many other people served as wonderful mentors. So that was another bit of luck, timing and great mentors. Uh, but I had a sort of a nose for what's what's getting hot. What, what where is law moving to address a huge problem? So, for example, in Philadelphia, at the time of the investigative work I did with the grand jury, police corruption was a, a big topic in in various big cities. And starting in New York with the Knapp Commission, and it migrated to other cities. So. Um, I had sort of a radar for what's about to become a big challenge that lawyers are going to be addressing. Watergate was much the same. The church committee, again, uh, very much the same. Uh, and um, so I, I tended to focus on, on things that were uh, getting a lot of attention, had a lot of priority. We're, we're going to be pursued with great seriousness and uh, temporary teams of very high talent, high talented people. That was true in Spectre's office, true in Watergate, special prosecutor's office, true in the church committee, true in the public integrity section, uh, in justice. Um, and even in the Senate office where I was sort of a, a general advisor uh, to Spectre uh, during that seven year period, uh, that also was very educational and lots of fun. Um, so some of it was luck, some of it was, you know, a form of connections, some of it was being alert to opportunities, to timing, and knowing when to, you know, leave one thing and go to the next big thing that was starting to rise up as a societal uh, priority. Okay. Uh, what made you decide to become a judge? Um, well, as I said, I was very enamored of the idea that law should be beneficial to people broadly, to the public, to the country, uh, and seemed like judges uh, are focused in a similar fashion, public prosecutors also. Uh, and as I said, it had been in the back of my mind since a very early age uh, to become a lawyer and if possible to become a judge. Uh, and uh, uh, it's a, you know, not anything you can ever organize or plan or count on, as you have already pointed out. But if the opportunity uh, comes up, uh, I think people should take it because the salary is way lower than successful lawyers in private practice. But the challenge and the excitement is unlimited. Uh, and the learning potential is unlimited. So uh, I basically made the decision to be a public lawyer, and I was for 45 straight years. I was on rather modest, I'll call it, public salaries for 45 straight years, ending as a judge. Uh, and at every one of those levels, I was making way, way, way less money than my law school classmates or friends or neighbors. But the excitement and the potential uh, contribution was more than uh, worth it. And I have no regrets uh, at all. Uh, the only problem was at the end of 44 straight years of public service, my finances were ba basically zilch. I didn't own anything except clothes. Uh, and so uh, in my retirement years, I spent a great deal of the early time, particularly trying to recoup financially by doing uh, consulting and that worked. And then in more recent years, I've shifted my attention back to the public policy uh, area and doing lots of work with uh, 
conferences, uh, including at Fordham Law School, which I just love, uh, and other conferences and working with all manner of people I previously had very little exposure to, like business people, scientists, investors, uh, think tank people, economists, historians, and so on. So I've learned a ton in recent years, and I'm finding it very exhilarating um, and potentially beneficial. Uh, so I'm now working very closely with the Congress to try to strengthen IP regimes, all of them, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, uh, even a competition law and antitrust law to an extent. Uh, and it's been a huge education and very inspiring. So uh, I'm trying to make good use of everything that I uh, learned in all those years. Uh, I don't have any hobbies. Uh, you know, I don't play golf or anything like that. So uh, I wanted to keep working partly because uh, I thought I would keep my brain in gear, which it has, and partly because I enjoy the excitement of working on issues of importance to the public. Uh, so I'm still doing that in the form of uh, intellectual property reform efforts, uh, mainly in the Congress, but also to an extent in the Patent and Trademark Office and in the executive branch, uh, particularly uh, uh, White House and commerce level policymakers who have enormous influence and power. So I'm going uh, six or seven days a week, full speed ahead. So uh, what does your wife say about all this? She thinks, Paul, it's, she thinks Paul, it's great. Why did we get married? I want to see you a little bit. No, <laughs> no actually, um, we've had uh, an odd experience during the COVID years, uh, way less worrisome than for many people, despite our age, uh, and really having some wonderful side benefits. So nowadays I work at home. I'm at home almost every day, all day. We have three meals a day together. We have endless and uh, inspiring conversations. So it, retirement has been uh, good for my uh, personal life as well as my pocketbook. But you're not actually retired, are you? No, I guess I should say I changed jobs. Now I'm sort of a public busybody. Yeah. Uh, also, you're an adjunct professor. Where are you an adjunct professor? Um, uh, currently, I'm not, uh, Hugh. I did a lot of teaching at George Washington University Law School in the 90s, teaching appellate practice and procedure, which I much enjoyed. And I taught some uh, te technique-based uh, advocacy courses uh, at uh, John Marshall Law School, at uh, University of Akron Law School, uh, and sh shorter stints uh, here and there. But I, I ended up giving that up uh, when I became the chief judge of the Federal Circuit, which was in 2004. And I served in that uh, chief judge slot until I retired in May of 2010. So I'm retired uh, 12 and a half years now. Uh, and I've enjoyed it a lot. You know, I had an interesting conversation with former Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor after she left the Supreme Court. I think that was in 2005. And she went on a sort of personal campaign to revive the teaching of civics and related subjects in American schools. And one day I was at a lunch where she was the speaker and we were seated next to one another at the table. And we had an extended private conversation. 
during it, she said to me, you know, I think what I'm doing now in her retirement is more important than anything I did on the Supreme Court. And that's exactly the way I feel about the 12 years I've uh, spent as a consultant and a public advocate for uh, IP regimes to be improved, strengthened, made more efficient, more effective, uh, more able to incentivize creators and uh, authors and inventors and investors to do what they want to do better. Interesting. Also, I had sort of a similar experience with Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder, this is getting weirder to some degree. Almost everything you mentioned is something that I did a little bit of anyway. Uh, and uh, Hugh, this is encouraging to young people because if it happened yeah. not to one of us, but to both of us, maybe it can happen to a lot of them. Yeah, and she's great to hang out with, you know. I mean, uh, I, I ran into her because uh, she was part of this. We had a program of uh, overseas. We we're going to do a little bit of law for various schools or something. And uh, and she was doing that, and I was doing that. And then, of course, you have lunch and dinner and she is so much fun to be with uh, she's a real person as well as a great public official and lawyer and judge yeah she was she was uh, it's it quite a good experience all right um what is the difference from being a chief judge and a judge in terms of your life if there's uh, any uh, well, of course, the chief judge only has one vote like uh, all the other judges, uh, and the workload is essentially the same. And uh, so you read briefs and you decide cases and you write opinions and you send memos to panel colleagues and all those kind of things. But uh, the chief judge uh, of the federal circuit has some interesting uh, special uh, duties. Uh, because the federal circuit uh, has its own budget separate from the budget of the judiciary at large. So you have to deal with Congress on budget matters. Uh, and it has uh, uh, charge of not only a courthouse that also houses the Court of Federal Claims, uh, but also uh, three historic buildings fronting Lafayette Park right across from the White House. Wonderful historical buildings and and nicely maintained. So maintaining those buildings and furnishing them in a historically accurate way was another sidelight of my duties as a chief judge. Uh, and so that was quite interesting. Uh, and of course, after uh, the 9-11 bombings in New York and at the Pentagon, uh, security of public buildings became a huge deal. It, already been a pretty big deal because of the Oklahoma City courthouse bombing, but it was huge in the years right after 9-11. So I was in charge of security pretty much of a whole block of the city of Washington on the uh, uh, eastern edge of Lafayette Park. So lots of uh, uh, security measures were instituted that hadn't been there before and hadn't been needed. So I was up to my eyeballs uh, in that. So there was actually quite a lot to do uh, as the chief judge separate from uh, the normal work of, uh, of my colleagues. It was challenging. It was interesting. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, 
Uh, I found it uh, on the whole quite satisfying. And there was a nice side light of that. If you're a circuit chief judge, you're automatically on the judicial conference, which of course, as you know, is the governing body of the whole federal judicial system. 26 judges chaired by the chief justice, uh, 13 circuit chief judges and elected judges from district courts in each of the circuits. Uh, and Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, uh, selected me to serve on the seven-judge executive committee. The conference meets twice a year uh, for a day or two at a time it, in Washington. It meets how often? Twice a year. Okay. In Washington, in the Supreme Court building. But all the decisions uh, in between are made by the executive committee. So it really kind of manages week to week the federal judicial establishment, seven judges. And I was on that for uh, uh, from 2005 until I retired in 2010. And that was a very, very interesting experience, quite separate from the chief judge duties, you know, in my courthouse or around my courthouse, as I was explaining. And I enjoyed that very, very, very much. And part of the reason I retired was to be free to speak out, uh, frankly, about public policy issues and political controversies, which sitting judges, of course, uh, are not supposed to do and quite properly, I think, limited in that respect. But the other big motivation uh, was that uh, my tenure as the chief judge was coming to an automatic end because I was then 69. And uh, the minute you hit your 70th birthday, you're no longer the chief, automatic. Uh, and that would mean I would no longer be on the judicial conference or its executive committee either. So my choice was, you know, hang around the court as a former chief, uh, either full-time uh, or part-time as a senior judge, or go out and do something new. So I chose the latter course and uh, got very good advice from my spouse who said that, uh, she thought that I would really enjoy being a solo consultant. And she had done that in the area of federal government contracting. So she sort of taught me how to be a solo consultant. I knew nothing. I couldn't even work my computer at that point. Uh, so she taught me how to do all that. And I enjoyed it hugely and have worked on scores of mediations and may, uh, maybe upwards of 100 moot courts in the 12 years and a handful of arbitrations and mediations and a handful of expert witness gigs, all of which were very, very interesting, uh, very uh, uh, educational. Uh, and I'm glad that I did uh, all of those. And then, as I said, in more recent years, I've been shifting. So now I spend the majority of my time on what I'll call public education or public advocacy, as opposed to consulting with individual lawyers who have big cases, almost always appellate cases. I've done a few mock trials, uh, but but mostly it's appellate level work and mostly in the federal circuit and the majority uh, uh, involving patent uh, infringement suits. Did you find that people treated you differently when you became a chief judge? Uh, I guess to an extent, uh, and part of it is uh, positive because uh, colleagues want to be cooperative and supportive, uh, and the staff, a large and very good professional staff at the courthouse, of uh, all sorts of different specialty people, uh, and I had to supervise them. That was an interesting, important part of the job too. Um, but there was an, uh, a flip side of it because 
when you're the chief judge, you have to make some decisions that are sometimes very unpopular with some of the colleagues. So on the one hand, they want to support you and be cooperative. And on the other hand, they can come to resent you if it's their ox that's being gored. So it was a sort of a mixed uh, uh, change. Um, but I had enjoyed being one of the ordinary judges and learning from older, more experienced colleagues who were wonderful mentors. I had wonderful mentors on the court, as in all the prior jobs. Um, and then when I was the chief, uh, I had uh, I learned a lot from other chiefs and from people on the executive committee and from the chief justice, you know, first Rehnquist and then Chief Justice Roberts. Um, so, you know, it was all really good. Uh, but it's a little bit tricky business being a chief judge. You're not elected. It's uh, all a function of age and seniority. Uh, so uh, it's a delicate uh, job to handle because you have no coercive powers, but you have lots of responsibilities. Okay. Uh, did your wife treat you differently after you became chief judge? Uh, no, she she was very helpful uh, before I was the chief judge, when I was the chief judge, and in my so-called retirement. Uh, uh, she's a very steady person. She well, Paul, Paul, that was a joke. Uh, I know, but I'll tell you the truth, because it's so powerfully, blatantly so. All right. Uh, sorry about this, Paul. Uh, all right, so now... You've been very outspoken about the substantive law uh, that has been, I don't know if it's continued to be or what, that, uh, and you've written or, or co-written a number of articles about how bad it is. Why don't you tell us exactly what you think that what's going on there? Well, I think that the courts, generally speaking, have lost sight of the inherently instrumental nature of intellectual property law. It's a part of commercial law. It's supposed to work in the real world. It's supposed to aid and assist the actors on the ground, the inventors and investors and authors and composers and so forth. And I think the courts easily lose sight of the practical consequences of what they decide and write. Uh, secondly, I think uh, because they have to focus on precedent, they tend to obsess over words and phrases and opinions, sometimes of long, long ago. And those uh, uh, bits of language uh, can sort of take on a life of their own and get expanded and expanded. And I think that's happened uh, over and over in patent law, certainly, and to an extent in the other IP uh, regimes. Uh, so I think in a way, the courts are not well serving the real users of the system. It's not meant to be for intellectual excitement of judges or for the fun or remuneration of patent lawyers or copyright lawyers or whatever. Um, uh, so I'm uh, very focused on trying to uh, reconnect the courts to the, what I'll call the real world actors uh, so that the system can function uh, better. Uh, the other thing is that uh, the Congress has basically been dysfunctional, I would say, for the last two decades. So if the courts do something that turns out to be uh, uh, unproductive, unwise, impractical, uh, it's almost impossible to get the Congress to correct it because uh, they're so mired in bitter partisan fighting. And unless something 
is uh, consensusly supported by all stakeholders. They don't want to touch it. And in, in IP law of all types, there are always going to be differences because the creators and the users have different uh, financial interests. Uh, so it's hard to get a consensus. Therefore, it's extra hard to get the dysfunctional Congress to act in IP areas, but they're dysfunctional, I think, pretty much across the board. Uh, and they pay almost no attention to what's going on in the courts. Uh, there's no real communication between the courts and the Congress. So if Congress writes a law that's unclear and the courts struggle to define it, uh, why can't they work together to uh, correct the confusion and come up with language that meets the intent of the Congress and the needs of the court? But they don't do that. I think it's a, a shame and it can and should be done. The other thing is that the IP regimes, uh, particularly patents and copyrights, trademarks is a little bit mixed because some of it's usage and some of it's common law or state law, but, but uh, copyright law and patent law are purely federal law, but statutory law, but the courts often treat it as if it's just common law where the courts are free to do almost anything that they decide uh, seems to be what they think is good policy. And to me, that's a serious problem. Uh, and it's even worse when, for example, the Supreme Court and the eligibility cases uh, makes broad economic and innovation policy for the whole country, the whole economy, based on a very slender record, uh, supplemented by a few uh, self-interested so-called amicus briefs uh, in a two-party case normally. Uh, uh, and I just think in a democracy, it's fundamentally un wise and improper for unelected judges to be making broad policy choices affecting millions of Americans and the whole economy, that's the job of the elected legislators. Uh, but the uh, coordination and cooperation between the two branches has been uh, slim to none as far as I can see. Uh, and so policy gets made by the Supreme Court uh, and it doesn't get corrected by the Congress, even if it's distinctly inconsistent with the expectations or wishes uh, of the Congress. And I think that has to be uh, remedied. And of course, the three branches all have to work together. So the cooperation between the court and the patent office in the case of the federal circuit needs to be greatly improved in my opinion. Um, uh, and uh, all three branches need to focus on uh, how well does it work in the real world? And if it doesn't work well, let's adjust it to make it work well, because uh, it's all uh, functional. It's supposed to benefit uh, the people who depend on these systems so the society can get great creations and great new products and new cures. Uh, and it's not happening to the extent it can and should because of the dysfunction between and among uh, the three branches. And I blame the courts for a lot of it, but the Congress uh, deserves its share of the blame. And so does the executive branch. It's my personal perception. Uh, I can't prove it, but I would say the last four PTO directors have been on a very short leash from the White House in the respective R&D administrations in which they serve. So the statute says that the director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is the principal official on those matters and the chief advisor to the chief executive. 
but in reality, some third level White House staffer actually dictates what the director is going to be permitted to do in many circumstances, not all day, every day, but in many circumstances. And I think that's very unfortunate because they don't have the experience, they don't have the insight, they don't have the factual background. And I think the director of the patent office uh, should be elevated in power so that that person uh, can really carry out the functions that the statute assigns to them instead of being at the end of a puppet string by somebody in the Commerce Department or the White House or somewhere like that. Uh, so that's another sort of uh, intra-branch dysfunction, and it all can be fixed. You know, these are real problems. Real people can fix them. There's plenty of talent and goodwill and intelligence and education, but the, the work of being sort of... Uh, uh, collaborative uh, is uh, getting scant attention. And that's the basic strategy for curing all these problems in my personal view. All right, has this gotten worse over the years or has it always been this way or what? Well, I think it's gotten much worse. In the last 16 years, the Supreme Court has revolutionized patent law in cases like eBay precluding injunctions, uh, KSR, upending the mode of deciding obviousness, the key patentability issue. Uh, and in the four eligibility cases, uh, Bilski, Mayo, Myriad, and Alice. Uh, so the Supreme Court kind of run wild for 16 years uh, in a way that I think is very detrimental uh, because it's created such uncertainty. So business leaders can't make decisions because they can't predict anything. Uh, there's a chaos. Their advisors can't give them firm assurance that this will be patentable or this patent will hold up or that investment will pay off. So when in doubt, people who control money and product making decisions don't act. So uh, the uncertainty is crimping economic and technological development, I think, in a very material way. So that's a, you know, a big uh, concern to me. And the Congress, uh, I think, has gotten even more dysfunctional over the decades. When I was there in the 80s, the Senate was a very collaborative, collegial, uh, productive place on the whole. Uh, and now it looks to me like the Senate is just a big snake pit of partisan bickering and uh, nasty uh, smear comments against people of the other party exaggerated and false statements made left and right. The House is uh, at least as bad. So I think the Congress has gotten steadily less responsible, less adult, less collegial, less civil. So yes, I think it has gotten worse over the last 30 years or so uh, in all three branches, uh, but it can all be fixed by goodwill. And how do you get that? I don't know. If I knew I'd be making greater progress on Capitol Hill than I have so far. I have to tell you a funny story, too, about my role as a public policy advocate. I, if I count correctly, I filed uh, five uh, amicus briefs in the Supreme Court, mostly on the search stage rather than the merit stage, uh, but a couple on the merit stage. I'm 0 for 5 in the Supreme Court. Oh, what do you mean the search stage and the merit stage? What are you talking about? Trying to get them to grant cert to hear a case on oh, the merit. Oh, search stage. Search stage, right. sorry. I thought you said the, search. Yeah, yeah. The majority of my 
uh, amicus briefs at the Supreme Court were at the stage of the cert petition being reviewed, a couple at the merits stage. In all five cases, the Supreme Court completely ignored what I said. Similarly, I filed five or six amicus briefs at the Federal Circuit, where I'm also O for O for the denominator, O for five or O for six. So I'm having a hard time con convincing uh, former colleagues in the judicial branch. I've had a little better uh, progress in the Congress of late because Senators Tillis and Coons are very interested, very attentive, very knowledgeable about uh, IP matters, copyright, uh, trademark, and particularly patents, and very active. So I'm very hopeful there'll be some progress uh, under their leadership, and I'm working hard to help that. Tillis, who was the other one? Coons, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware. So one's a Republican, one's a Democrat. Exactly. And both very smart and both have a real insight. Uh, Coons used to be the general counsel, I think, of the Gore company, Gore-Tex, et cetera. So he knew all about IP from that stage of his life. Uh, and Tillis was uh, an engineer, worked for Wang Laboratories, later IBM, later founded his own company. So he's a business guy, an entrepreneur, an engineer, very savvy, both very smart and, uh, and you know, uh, bipartisan in their behavior. So there's a lot of hope, but there's a lot of work to do. And I hope I'm around uh, long enough to see some real progress in the coming years. What are you doing for a living? Is it something that students can help you with becoming a, you know, part-time uh, assistant to you or something? Or where are you actually physically? I live in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, just south of the historic Old Town area, about halfway between there and Mount Vernon along the Potomac River in an ordinary sort of subdivision uh, and that's where my office is. So that's where I am nearly every day. Uh, and uh, I stayed in Washington rather than moving elsewhere because I was so interested in staying close to Congress, the White House, the patent office, the think tanks, and all the rest because I wanted to participate to the maximum extent in these policy uh, debates and legislation and so forth. So I didn't want to go to some beautiful you know, spot in the Grand Teton Mountains or somewhere and, and be out of the mix. Do you hire students part-time to help you? Um, I haven't. Uh, I did hire one former law clerk to help writing articles. I've written about 70 articles in my retirement, mostly co-authored with former law clerks or former PTO directors or other such uh, people. Uh, but uh, in the main, uh, I've operated just as a solo person. I think there is a role for law students to do very pinpointed research, particularly of an empirical variety. One of the things that drives me crazy uh, about amicus briefs uh, uh, is that they uh, tend to uh, just echo what side they like said in its brief and uh, endlessly quote from all the language and all the precedents and reveal very little about what's happening in the real world, which is what courts don't know and really need to know. So a lot of improvement could come if amicus briefs were better grounded in empirical facts and data. And uh, not only scholars like yourself, but law students uh, could help a lot with that. For example, on injunctions, there's no good data on 
how frequently are injunctions are granted and what sort of cases, when are they denied, when and why do lawyers not even seek an injunction after winning a patent case on infringement and validity. So there are great opportunities for very beneficial research. Uh, and if there were a way to organize it, I'd be all for doing it. That would be the last two words I didn't hear. The what? I would be all for doing it, assuming there is a way that it can be organized to be functional. All right. So if I'm a Joe student and I, I hear this and I say, okay, uh, I'm going to call up Judge. What, what, what do you want the students to call you, Judge, Judge Mitchell? Yeah, usually people call me Judge, except people that I work with or who are peers like Hugh Hansen. So I call him Hugh and he calls me Paul. <laughs> but lawyers are in, unfailingly polite and law students are too. And that's probably a good way to start your career. Later, you can shed the judge. Yeah, yeah, okay. So why not take this opportunity? And I, you know, basically tell the students I get 10% anything they get on this is, is get them working on this. Uh, they could call you or whatever you and... Uh, and maybe uh, make it just having, you know, this group of people working for you could make a difference. You just said it could. No, I have no doubt it could help because there's a, there's a lot of empirical fact kind of research that's done and appears in various journals and publications. But there are huge gaps in it, huge gaps. I gave you the example of injunction, but I could give 10 other examples. But it would be very pinpointed research and the student would have to want to do it. I think it's a little bit like a mini clerkship. I think it could be quite beneficial to the students developing writing skills and analytical skills outside the classroom. So I think it would not only benefit my efforts, but also benefit the student. I'd be happy to give it a try. Good. You know, the interesting thing on this is, uh, actually, when I was uh, a student, which was not that far away from when you were students, is we we all did this pro bono. We we worked for nothing. We worked for the experience. Now, of course, nobody works for the experience. Everyone has to get paid. So if students work for you, you you'd able to get them some money, right? Uh, I haven't thought about it, but I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, students have expenses like everybody else. Uh, so, or maybe, maybe they don't, they have to do this pro bono and it could be great on their resume and everything else. So, all right. Uh, finally, Paul is thinking, thank God I got to get out of here. Uh, no, no, I always enjoy answering questions by Hugh Hanson because they're always so clever and often very humorous, sometimes sarcastic. Uh, and so it's always fun. All right. All right. Supreme Court case. Uh, current Supreme Court case. You want my favorite uh, case that I hate? Yeah. Uh, Mayo. Mayo upended all the prior case law on eligibility while pretending to follow what it acknowledged were the controlling precedents, fluke and deer. But it completely mangled the holdings of both fluke and deer. Uh, it was a unanimous decision, so it was pretty hard, hard to argue against all nine justices. 
but I think they trusted Justice Breyer, who was the author, uh, and he wrote a very erudite-sounding opinion, very logical and very detailed, lengthy. Uh, but I think that it was a result-oriented, policy-oriented uh, inversion of the prior law, which was essentially captured in the 1981 case of Diamond versus Deer. So 30 years later, they trash Deer and, and create vast uncertainty. Um, and I'm not sure why they thought they needed to do that. I, I almost uh, wonder if the Supreme Court or the Federal Circuit or the district judges, uh, like many others, including in Congress, have been uh, overly influenced by these uh, narratives, you know, about patent trolls and patent abuse and bad patents and bogus lawsuits and expensive litigation and all these kind of sloganeering propagandistic phrases. I think when they appear in the press constantly, uh, and elsewhere constantly, it seeps into the thinking of judges and legislators and all kinds of other people. So maybe that's part of the explanation. Obviously, I, I can't prove that. But I think the courts have uh, really betrayed the uh, basic mission, you know, not maliciously, but in, in fact, uh, of the IP regimes, which is to incentivize and promote uh, creation and technology. That's what the Constitution says, Article 1, Section 8, <laughs> Clause 8, as you always emphasize, exclusive rights for authors and inventors. Uh, but we don't have an exclusive right now for authors and inventors because of a minority concurrence opinion in the eBay case authored not by the majority writer, but by the minority concurrence writer, uh, retired Justice Kennedy. How crazy is that, where a minority concurrence becomes the operative law in, at all levels of the court in the wake of that decision. And it's also ironic because there was a second minority concurrence, this one penned by Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, which said exactly the opposite, to my reading at least, of what the Kennedy concurrence said. So the Roberts concurrence has been ignored in all the years since then. The Kennedy concurrence is treated as if it were the majority opinion. But if you read the majority opinion, it doesn't say any such thing. So it's not even good lawyering, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I, I, I totally agree with you. What about the Andy Warhol case? Have any interest in that at all? Uh, I, I don't have enough knowledge about it to comment. I, I was deeply involved in the Oracle versus Google case, which gave me a refresher course in fair use doctrine which seems to me has been uh, played with by courts uh, in a way that's made it so elastic and unpredictable that it's parallel to the problems in the patent area where there's no clarity, no predictability, no certainty. And this is impeding the actors in the real world because they require a high level of certainty because they have to spend time and talent and money on these endeavors, and they aren't going to do it if there isn't what they consider sufficient protection afterward. Uh, so uh, I wish that uh, judges and legislators could be exposed to all the people I've been exposed to since leaving the court. I mentioned some of them before, uh, economists, business leaders, uh, scientists, uh, venture capitalists, and on and on, because you learn a ton from these people. Uh, and it really brings to the fore 
how poorly the courts are serving their needs. And the system exists for them, for their benefit, not for the excitement and intellectual stimulation of judges or the political machinations of politicians. So I'm for trying to optimize these four IP regimes to make them work better in the real world. And I think it's entirely possible, but it requires everybody to get out of their silo thinking. Judges have to look at more than some 1853 Supreme Court opinion that said blah, blah, blah. They have to look at a much broader array of, of factual information. And if they did, uh, and if the policymakers did, I think they'd come to different conclusions than they seem to have been gravitating to in the last 20 or so years. I think you're right. Uh, okay, well, Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and uh, this has been great. I, I've certainly learned stuff and I imagine our, our students I want to make one pitch to your students in closing here, Hugh, because it's a lesson I learned uh, the hard way. I didn't clerk, unlike you. That's where our paths departed. Uh, but as a judge employing clerks, I saw the value of the clerkship to them and certainly to me as a judge. And what it brought home to me more than ever was how uh, poor the writing of many smart lawyers is uh, and uh, learning to write legal stuff well is so important. So I encourage law students find every possible opportunity to write during their law school years and later, uh, any way they can, pro bono work or write articles or take courses where you have to write because it's a requirement. But write, write, write. The more you write, the better you get at it. And I think it's the single biggest weak point in law practice today. Poor writing by so many lawyers. And there may be part of this is law education is not emphasizing writing the way it used to. It, not enough. Uh, yeah. And probably not as much as it used to, which, which again is a shame. I, I, I'm for... I'm very, you know, old fashioned, old school, whatever you want to call it. I think young lawyers or even undergraduates should be required to do certain things, whether they uh, think it's fun or not. Uh, and a lot of writing would be something I would love to see law schools uh, require throughout the three years experience. And really the same with undergraduates. Undergraduates should also be required to write more and to take a broader array of courses. Silo thinking is the bane of the modern world. You have all these narrow experts who know very little and have very little interest in anything in a distant silo because they're happily existing in their own little tunnel or silo. Uh, and the, the uh, importance of integrating uh, uh, the, the different disciplines and different pools of knowledge it can't be overstated, uh, and writing helps promote that as well as being so important in its in its own right, because you have to uh, learn new stuff to write about it. So you have to dip into pools of knowledge and scholarship by others who came before. So anyway, law schools, law students, please write. <laughs> the more you okay. write, the better. Now. If a law student says, you know what, I want to write, and I want to write for Paul, for Judge Michelle, was that just, you were just throwing that out, or would you actually? No, I'm, I, I'm happy to do it if, if the law students uh, 
are interested in doing it, eager to do it, willing to put in the time and effort to, uh, over and above their courses and their other pursuits. Okay, good. Uh, well, Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, Hugh. Great fun. Fun and educational. I'm sure looking and forward to the wonderful conference in the spring. You pioneered the best conference in the whole country with a due emphasis on international and lots of visitors, particularly from Europe. Uh, and uh, it's a great thing. And I look forward to it every year and all the more so when it will be in person for a change. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Paul, thanks so much. Thanks so long.